Welcome to the Remote Work Drive podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. Hey everyone, my name is John O'Bacon. I help people build communities and I'm also the creator of the Community Leadership Core. And what I want us to figure out right now is how to build amazing online teams. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Drive podcast, Jono. Uh, can you maybe talk about the most exciting thing that you're up to these days? Yeah, I mean, right now, um, I'm going through an interesting period of transition where I've always done, well, always, for the last 10 years or so, I've been doing one-on-one consulting with companies where I help them to build uh, communities around their businesses and products and services and projects. And uh, I'm about to launch something called the Community Leadership Core, which is where I'm doing that, but in a group setting. So it's not just people working with me, but it's also kind of a tightly curated set of people. So going from that kind of like one-on-one way of working with people to a one-to-few, you know, because this is going to be a small curated group, there's just a whole set of like technology problems, collaboration problems to try and figure out to make it really engaging for people. Yeah, I love that. And to kind of follow up on what you just said there, what were some of the reasons that you, that led you to go from just one-to-one to now expanding and doing kind of group programs as well. Yeah. I mean, I've always like, I've always enjoyed, um, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of background here. So, you know, um, I used to work full-time for companies. Like I worked for, you know, Canonical, who build Ubuntu, XPRIZE, GitHub. Years ago, I used to work for a, a group called Open Advantage. And then I, I realized, you know, kind of in 2015 that I, I, I love working with lots of different people. So that's when I decided to start consulting. Uh, and consulting's fun and I really enjoyed it. And I, I feel very fortunate because I've always been fully booked since I started. But on one hand, it can be lonely because, um, you know, you're working one-on-one with people. But fundamentally, the, the, the relationship is always like the client is always wanting to, 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 to learn from the consultant. So I have influence, but I have no actual power, which is, which is always the case with consultants. So it can sometimes be a bit lonely in terms of there's less of a... Um, kind of a, uh, like a camaraderie around something in some ways. But the other element was I've been wanting to kind of scale up the impact of my work because one of the downsides that I've been in, which is a good problem to have is that, you know, because there's always been more demand for time for my, for my consulting services than time available, which I'm, I don't mean in an arrogant way. It's just, you know, there's not a lot of people out there who do what I do. It meant that like uh, what I did was what every consultant does and I put my prices up and then it gets to a point where, the fees are so expensive where only a, a, a smaller subset of the industry can, can pay them. And a lot of the companies I really like working with are like earlier stage startups, people who are just getting started, people who are running open source projects, things like that, as well as charities and nonprofits. And um, so I wanted to be able to figure out like to how to have a broader level of impact. So I started like, you know, I wrote People Powered. Prior to that, I'd written out a community. I started playing around with some like training courses. But what I really didn't want to do was to create like a group of consultants. I was not interested in building a consulting practice. So I was like, okay, how do I scale up the impact while having a, a still a, like a tightly run business? And that's when I settled on the community leadership core. And it wasn't just through me. Like I, you know, this is the formulation of so many different people who, who, uh, who were kind of fed into the process. And it took like eight months to kind of settle on the, on the plan. So. Yeah, I love that. And it's a, I think there's something really interesting there, which was it's all about like how you make an impact, but in a way that, you know, feels authentic to you and kind of the way that you want to show up. Yeah. I mean, on that note, like it's funny because I, you know, I started, I started going down the like the passive income kind of approach that some people get roped into where, 
you know, the idea is you create a pre-recorded training course and you go and you run a bunch of ads and you run these funnels and things like that. And I played around with that for two years to kind of experiment with it. But one was the economics just didn't work. Like the cost of customer acquisition was way higher than, uh, than, than, you know, than you could reasonably make sense to selling these products. And I was selling my things for like, you know, a couple of hundred dollars. Um, but the other thing more importantly was that it just felt kind of a bit, scammy um and it felt like i knew in my gut that a lot of people who were buying these training courses were probably not going to use them but i was kind of like trying to see the best in people and then when i started selling them and i started seeing the data and like a lot of people don't use pre-recorded training and then i heard a statistic that 95 percent of people who buy pre-recorded training never use it it murdered the plan for me because i was like well i don't want to make something that people aren't going to use like the whole point of this is that people use it so that's when I started like figuring out, okay, well, you know, what are the different layers of value? The bottom layer is, you know, people power. If someone goes out and buy it, it's $20 or whatever. Top layer is one-on-one -on -one consulting, which is very expensive. So what are the steps in between those points? Yeah, I love that. What were some of the biggest, when you went and launched this, when you're now watching this new program, what were some of the biggest mindset shifts that you had to have as kind of a community leader? Yeah, I mean, to me, there's kind of, there's two pieces to that question. One is like the mindset that went into designing it. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the mindset that's just in community in general. Um, to me, the critical mindset that I think every good community leaders got is that they wake up in the morning and the first thing they think about, even before they make a coffee, the first thing they think about is how do I make the lives of my community members better? How do I add value? Like, how do I take this magical like group of people, whether it's 10 people or whether it's 10,000 people, how do I engage with them in a way that, that adds tons of value where an hour spent in, my, in that community, they get three hours worth of value. Like to me, that's the fundamental mindset. The mindset in my mind, what it shouldn't be is, hey, go check out the community. It's over there. It's a forum or it's a Discord channel or whatever. Like, I think that's, I think that's pointless in many ways because a lot of those communities, they're just not very exciting. You know, if you go short to a community, it's just a bunch of Q&A, then like, who's going to want to come back to that? So that's kind of the mindset there. And then when I was thinking about building out the community leadership core, the mindset there was all about like, how do I create something that is connection over content, right? Like there is a massive level of content that I'm, I'm building hundreds of hours of training as part of this, but I want it to be where when you join one of these sessions, you feel like you really connected with a group of people where it's not just about, sure, you know, learning the right kind of skills for building communities and getting better results and, you know, how to communicate internally in a business and make sure that you're, you're, you're showcasing the business value. It's about like, how do I, how do I design an environment where, where people are really teaching each other? Because to me, the way in which we learn is we learn by, by doing and we learn by teaching. So that required like, you know, I, I drafted an in, initial plan around how it was going to work. And then I started pulling in loads of mentors that I've got to really shape up things like how I facilitate the conversations, how I structure the content, how I create an environment where people can be vulnerable, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. You said something really interesting there, which is really that like building out connection and then also creating an environment where people can actually learn to apply this, whether it's by doing it hands-on or by teaching. What are some of the ways that you found to be the most effective 
to do that, you know, at scale when it comes to you, whether it's a small group or a large community? Yeah, I think one of the most important things is, you know, I think there's two thoughts here. One is that we, um, I think there's two two misnomers that we kind of have in the world um, is that one is that we learn by consumption. Like, so people, you know, read books and they go to training courses and they watch YouTube videos and they go to conferences and, you know, uh, and they go to seminars and they do all that kind of stuff. And nine times out of 10, and I've done this as well, just like everybody else, you sit there and you inhale a bunch of content but then that content really just kind of like it sits in the like the top layer of your brain, right? Like it's kind of like, you know, putting some milk in a cup of coffee. Like initially it just hovers around at the top and then you stir it with the spoon to make it, you know, appear in the rest of the, you know, show up in the rest of the coffee. To me, that spoon is when you do stuff. And um, um, I think a lot of people like I've certainly been in the past, you know, enjoy the thrill of learning because it's 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 a feeling of potential and opportunity but then the act of doing is where people's anxiety and nervousness kind of sets in so i really just kind of double down on the notion of progress over perfection like let's just get some stuff done it might suck it probably will suck but let's do it and then let's get better you know so you know that was one of the first elements um in my mind to really focus on but then the second element as well is we have a tendency, I think, to over-focus on problem solving, you know? So everybody likes to, you know, there's this, especially on LinkedIn, there's this whole culture of like, we, we should adopt and embrace failure and we should take a proactive approach to problem solving. And I, that all, all that stuff is really important. And I 100% get it. But the challenge with only ever focusing and talking about solving problems is that it kind of like skews our perception to one that we're failing all of the time. Um, and I think that we should focus on problem solving, but we should also really focus on what I would like to refer to as pragmatic opportunity, which is, I'm not really a huge fan of all of the Tony Robbins, like, you know, if you think it, it can happen. And it's like, I just don't believe that, right? Like I've thought a bunch of things, right? I thought, for example, one day I will have a full head of hair, still basically bald, right? So, uh, but like, I think if we focus on, okay, these are the skills that I've got. These are the areas of passion that I've got and, and just start executing in some meaningful way, then we get better results. So to me, it's like a, a mixture of those. Yeah. I love that idea of like pragmatic optimism. Like I too am like really turned off by the Tony Robbins crowd. Nothing against that. Nothing yeah. against Tony Robbins and people who like him. It's just not for me. Um, <laughs> so I definitely resonate with the whole pragmatic optimism. My question to you as a follow-up to that is, okay, so like when you're, whether you're just consulting one-on-one with a client or you're consulting in a group, or maybe even you're like kind of working with somebody like a freelancer or like a team member or whatnot, how do you instill that in other people so that they can not, so that they're seeing both the good and the bad? Yeah, I think the key thing is, um, is uh, first of all, people need to believe it first. And then they need to see it activated, right? So nine times out of 10, like a lot of the conversations I have with clients or with like group, like members of the community leadership core or whatever is, it's where somebody has a perception of something, but the actual underlying cause of it is something different, you know? So for example, a lot of community managers and leaders are like, you know, um, oh, marketing doesn't get me. You know, marketing don't get community. 
You know, all they want to do is go out and do lead generation for the sales team. And they don't understand why in community is so important. And that to me is a super risky position to take for two reasons. One is that it's arrogant, is that it assumes that you know better than the marketing team, which is a blanket statement in many cases. And secondly, is it doesn't zone into what the real issue is. And, and invariably, when people say that, like, oh, marketing doesn't get me, typically what, what they really mean in my mind is my priorities that I've got with community and the tone and the taste and the ethos of community is not aligned with the tone and the taint, the tone and the, the taste of, and the ethos of the marketing team's approach because their priorities are different, right? So I think identifying the root cause, I think is in many cases step one because it forces people into a moment of personal honesty, right? Where like, if somebody was just listening to what I just said there and they were like, yeah, I get really annoyed with marketing team. And then I say that second part, I'm guessing some people who are listening to this are thinking, actually, you know what? He's probably right about that. And that might not be the reason, but to me, the first thing is identifying the root cause because otherwise we're just, we're just bouncing around in the symptoms. Like we're not dealing with the, we're not dealing with the infection. We're just dealing with the symptoms. But then to me, the way in which you enact action is, is, is having a first step that is really um, simple and with a high level of success. So if I was to say, if somebody was to say to me, you know, John, I like uh, marketing team don't get me. They just, they don't get community. You know, they're just out there and all they care about is sales. And I'd say, well, actually, when you say that, I think what you really mean, what the real issue here is, is the priorities are different, right? And the culture and the tonality is different. What I'd want to follow up with then to say is, so why don't you just get a 30 minute call on the calendar and just say to your marketing lead, can we just share our three priorities with like your three priorities and their three priorities and figure out some means to collaborate on one of them, right? So something really simple. And then to me, you got to follow up with the benefit of, and if you do that, like maybe it'll start, you know, bridging the gap and you'll be able to find opportunities where, where you're talking with each other instead of talking past each other. So to me, it's like, it's, it's those different stages. Yeah, I think that's such a really good point. And I'm glad you brought up the example of community and marketing, because I mean, a lot of times community does live in marketing. Sometimes it's in its own department, but like, it's not just community marketing. I feel like that's could also translate to pretty much any, whether you're in customer success, sales, marketing, every yeah. community, like, like you have to figure out ways to be able to collaborate together and not just be siloed or because, you know, that's not going to be how anyone's going to really advance their goals as much as when you're working together. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions for additional ways that, you know, let's say I'm a community manager and, you know, I maybe my found the founder and the CEO of the company doesn't truly understand the impact of community. Are there ways that, you know, you can start to demonstrate your your the impact that you're having? Yeah. And see yeah. You know, it's funny you ask. This is such a great question because, you know, with this community leadership core accelerator yeah. that I'm launching. The first, literally the first kind of component of it, um, and I won't, I won't go through how it all works. But basically, every quarter, I'm providing a recommended work plan for members of it. And the first thing that I'm recommending for everybody, it, there's a module called aligning company and, and business goals. This is a huge problem I see with a lot of communities, which is a lot of community managers. Is I was having a conversation with. Um, a client of mine who's a new client um, about two weeks ago and they, they they're having all kinds of issues with the marketing team and they were like we just want to be left alone we just want to be left alone to do what we're doing 
and I said to them, like, um, I appreciate that, but um, it's not a workable solution. Like, we've got to figure out a way of getting everybody to collaborate together because I can promise you that if it came down to it, um, between the choice between marketing and community, I promise you the marketing team will win. And the reason why they'll win is because the marketing team has a direct, cor direct correlation to the metrics of success in a commercial organization. The stuff that goes into a spreadsheet, things like revenue and lead generation and close rate and brand growth and things like that, they can feed directly into it. And the community team can feed partially into that, but a whole chunk, chunk, chunk of the value of community, of course, is it's all the stuff that we love. It's the, it's the, it's the intrinsic value. It's, it's kindness and empathy and mentoring and collaboration and diversity and all those pieces. So my feedback to them was like, you've got to make sure that you align this. So what I, what I say in this kind of work is step one of that is like really understand the goals of the business. And for some community folks, this is going to be really weird. And you're going to feel a bit like a sellout, right? Like, you know, one of the goals for the business is probably going to be tied to revenue. Another one might be tied to people signing up for your products. Another one might be tied to partner uh, agreements and relationships. Every business has got their own definition of success here. And it's intrinsically important in my mind that you tie the work that you're doing in the community to feeding into those goals, right? So for example, if one of the goals is brand growth, then the work that you're doing in the community seems like you could be generating a whole bunch of opportunity for people learning about the business and learning about your products and building growth in that way that will, that will fuel that metric of success. Another one, if you're talking about like partner relationships, well, it could be, okay, well, why don't we go and do some, some, why don't we figure out who our target partners are and try and attract some of those people into our community? It doesn't mean that you have to compromise on the goals of the community or the tonality of the community but there's got to be a direct connection some way. Because if you operate in a silo, I can promise everybody who's listening to this, it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when the shoe will drop. Uh, and it will drop and it will hurt. So getting that, lining that up is important. And then it also means that you can demonstrate that you as a community leader are zoned in on, on those goals of the business. Because even if your CEO says, yeah, I just want you to go and do your own thing. We don't want you to be encumbered by the business. That's fine, but that's not true. Like everybody is going to want the goals of the community to feed into the business in some way. So I'd encourage everybody to do that. And you can do that. It's, it's as simple as like, just go and ask, like go and ask your leadership team, like what are our objectives this year? And if they don't have a good answer for that, well, that's a red flag, first of all. But secondly, if they don't have those answers, then press them for it. Like say, well, I can't be successful with our community unless I know what we're, what we're all really here to do. So press them for it and people will respect you for pressing for that. Yeah, absolutely. I have so many follow-up questions and I could not agree more. Like putting yourself as a community person, like in a silo and like shutting yourself from the business, it's like a guaranteed one-way ticket to getting <laughs> laid off. So, but like, we're both here, we're both consultants, we're both chatting, we both run our own businesses, um, yeah. are familiar with like business metrics, P&Ls, how to really think about it in terms of rep, how to, you know, shape community and in terms of like revenue, but let's say, you know, I'm a more junior, let's say a more junior or mid-level community person's listening to this. They're in a gigantic organization and they're maybe very far, they're like two, three, four, five steps removed from kind of some of the high level goals. What are some strategies they can take to be able to better align themselves and yeah. showing that community isn't something, is something there when they maybe don't have any 
business acumen and they are junior and in a very large position. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So there's I I, I have two thoughts that relate to this. Uh, one is kind of philosophical, one is practical. There are I think there are just massive levels of imposter syndrome in the world. It's not just tied to people who are junior. Um, it, it 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 applies to to lots of people in all stages of life, in all you know all genders, all you know all racial backgrounds, all geographical you know or socioeconomic backgrounds, every level of a business is imposter syndrome. And um, invariably, one of the challenges with imposter syndrome is because there's a power differential. The, the, the person with the imposter syndrome feels like they have less power. And one of the things I think is important to remember here is that, you know, in podcasts like this and in books and in videos and things like that, we often talk about the mechanics and the the tactics and the strategies of, of, of doing work. But fundamentally, one of the things that I think defines a lot of success in the world, and without wishing to sound like an incense burning hippie, is it's about energy exchange, right? It's that um, you're a good example, Jesse. Like I've known you for a while, and you just have a very positive, affable, friendly, curious demeanor. And it makes people want to spend time with you. Like, it, it, you know, and if you compare and contrast that to someone who's a bit of an a-hole, you're like, well, I don't want to spend time with that dude. So to me, it's all about like putting that energy out. And if you are new in your career and you want to kind of like align with your leadership in your business or whatever, if you're a friendly, positive, hardworking individual, even if you make the wrong moves, people will respect you. Um, because they'll respect that energy from you. So definitely don't hold back and just um, progress over perfection is everything. It's better to go out there and have a go than to never start um, and and to be, you know, fear-based decision-making is the worst thing you can do, right? So that's the philosophy. From a practical perspective, you know, there are multiple layers in most companies, right? So, you know, at the top, you usually have the CEO. Then you've got, well, right at the top, there's a board. And then there's a CEO. And then there's a, an executive team that reports into the CEO, people like the CMO and the COO and people like that. Then you usually have a middle management layer, and then you will have individual contributors and potentially more managers. If you go directly to the CEO right out the gate, sometimes it can cause concerns that you're kind of going around people and things like that. So what I like to recommend is, first of all, start building a really amazing rapport with your manager. And with other managers in the business, right? Just start like getting to know them, understanding their goals. Like ask them like, hey, I always like to present it this way. Like, look, I want to I want to be in service of everybody's success, not just my own. So I'd like to understand your goals. And I'd also like to understand what your concerns, right? With, with, the, with, 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 with the company, with your team or whatever. So I can help with that. And when you build those alliances, first of all, you start building trust. And then those managers will start talking about you to other managers and they will talk about you to their managers as well. And just gradually work yourself up the chain a little bit. Now, if you're in a little company like a startup, it's much easier to go and talk to the CEO and, and to the other executives. If you're in a big company, it can be more difficult to do that. There's generally, even though it shouldn't be this way, there's often a stigma about, you know, going and reaching out to a senior executive like there's a feeling that you should go through channels which is stupid but you know that's the nature of the world we live in so i would just start there and just but the key thing in my mind 
is it's about investing in other people's success. Like when you are offering to play a role in other people being successful, then you just, your reputation will grow, your impact will grow, and good things will happen to you. Yeah, I could not agree anymore. So sometimes some of the people who are listening to this are brand new managers um, in their first management role. And I'm going to go off an edge case. Do you have any strategies for someone who is in a remote team? They just became a manager. Navigating the nuances of managing remotely is already complicated enough. But what happens if maybe them and their manager don't always see eye to eye on things? Are there ways that, you know, is that doomed or are there ways that you can actually get better? Yeah. So I don't think it's ever, I don't think anyone's ever doomed. To me, the the, the minute it becomes doomed is when is when emotion and fear determines our decision making. So if you have a manager, for example, like I'll give you an example without saying any names. I used to work for a guy some time ago, shall we say, who was just not a particularly nice person. You know, he was always zoning in on like, every conversation was about like what's going wrong and what we need to fix. He wasn't very clear in his requirements. He was aggressive in some cases and he wouldn't treat people very equally. And, uh, and he also was managing massive levels of stress and he'd take it out on people. Uh, it wasn't fun working for him. But one of the things I learned from my dad growing up, and I, I've always admired about my dad, is he has never once emotionally responded to these kinds of situations. So I basically, you know, he would get frustrated this or that other or whatever. And I kind of, this is what influenced a lot of my um, work in previous community work as well was like, even if people were being trolls and difficult, whatever else, I'd never, I try not to ever emotionally react. So to me, the most important thing is like, look at every conversation as what do we need to do to find a set of practical next steps that will, um, that will make whatever this situation is better. So if somebody is being difficult to work with, the first thing to do is to just say, okay, I'm gonna put all the emotion to one side. Like if they're being frustrated and they're being uh, maybe a little aggressive, I mean, obviously if somebody's being abusive, then you should never tolerate that. I'm not suggesting anyone should tolerate abuse, but in most cases, it's not. it doesn't get quite that bad. But just always bring it back to, all right, Let's zone in on what the issue is here and let's figure out what our next steps are. And I think that's the most important thing. And it takes time to develop that skill. But what's nice about it is that, um, is that I think if, you, if you're always focusing on practical outcomes and then you reinforce those practical outcomes uh, by writing them down. So like with this manager that I'm talking about, we get on a call, he would complain for 10 minutes straight about something you know, typically something that somebody else was doing and then it'd tie it into me and somehow it'd be my fault as well. And then I'd say, okay, well, I appreciate that. And, and I, I like the feedback. So why don't we talk about, you know, I think this is the root cause and these are some steps that I'd like to focus on to, to move things forward. And then he would often say, yep, that sounds great. I'd then send that back to him as an email and just reinforce, like, these are the things I'm going to work on. And then we'd reconnect the following week and I'd walk through the progress that I'd made on it. And what it did, like him and I ended up becoming later in, later on pretty good friends. And he said, because he was going through a bad breakup and all kinds of things that were influencing it. He said that he always admired, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet here, how he said, like, you were never rattled. 
Um, and I think that's the key thing is don't be rattled. And then also I would definitely recommend just always be building relationships. Like every time you can go out for coffee or lunch or dinner or whatever, try and do it because um, we human beings, we, you know, we build relationships by breaking bread, right? Like that's how we do it. And that's the problem with a remote worker. So if you ever get an opportunity to be in person with people, make sure you spend that time as well. But the most important thing is don't let emotion and fear drive your decisions. Yeah, that's such good advice. And that's almost like a masterclass in like one of the ways to manage up with a more difficult manager, or even just a difficult colleague. Do you have other strategies for how people, let's say anyone from like the mid-level manager to even more senior execs can go about managing up when they are working remotely and so they don't become quote unquote a second class citizen? Yeah, I mean, a couple of thoughts on that is one is, the further you go up the chain, um, uh, two things typically happen, right? Is one is the stakes get higher, right? So, you know, if you are a developer um, and you are, you know, relatively low in the organization, you have very important work to do. Um, it's not that it's unimportant, but your work largely impacts you and your team. And of course the product and your users, right? But um, at the top of the chain where you've got the CEO, that CEO is making decisions that impact people's lives, right? Like people's livelihoods. So the stakes are higher. So consequently, the further you go up the chain, there's more pressure in many cases. And also the further you go up the chain, there is more of a demand for people. People ask more of people as they go up the chain. So for the developer who's on the ground, you know, their boss is probably asking them to do a bunch of stuff. And there's probably got, you know, some users and some product people. But when you go up to like the middle management layer, they've got staff who are constantly saying, I don't have enough time. I need to ship these features. I need more help, right? And the, the layer above them, like the executive layer is like, we need more staff. We need more resources. We need more budget. We need more time. And then the CEO gets the amalgamation of all of that. So the one thing I would say in terms of managing up is, is appreciating that one, that is the dynamic of that world. And anything you can do to relieve that pressure will be perceived as a win. So if you are a developer or, you know, and you, you are reporting into um, your manager, anything you can do to make their life a little bit easier will resonate deeply with them. But the other thing is that the further you go up the chain, the less information people want to consume. This is one of the mistakes a lot of community folks make that I've seen is, you know, they work really hard. And they're like, oh, this is my strategy for building out the community. And they send it to the CMO or the CTO or the CEO or whoever it might be. And they send over like a 40-page document with every conceivable thing written out and considered, which is amazing. But no one's ever going to read that. Like, you need to send them five bullet points. And this is where I think Twitter has been a good thing in the world, is Twitter has forced us to condense our thinking into a small amount of text meaningfully uh, we don't have the we we don't get to be um self-indulgent in waffling you know i would just like if you're investing relieving those those tension points and you make sure that you communicate in the least amount of text as possible then it it will it will really help and but the other thing i would say one other final thing is is make it clear as well that like this is goes back to the power dynamic like when you work for a company it's not like the company is doing you a favor by giving you a job. You are providing services to that company, right? And don't get pushed around. Like, I mean, don't become like, 
some people who worked in some companies in tech where they'd go ballistic on Twitter if they didn't get the right kind of granola in the office. Like you don't want to be that person, but like make it clear that um, for me to do my job effectively, there's certain things I need. I need direction. I need focus. I need decision-making to happen. And I think when you strike that balance, you'll just keep rising. So, Yeah, that's such a really good point. Um, there are so many really good points in there. Something that kind of resonated with you said before, it's like, I was totally, when I was like a newbie, like community employee, like newbie marketer, still working as an employee before I went up on my own, like those first couple jobs, I used to like spend so much time putting together these like elaborate PowerPoint presentations that were like 25 slides. And I'm like, hesitate to think about. No one read that outside of yeah. manager. Yeah. But what are the metrics that you think every single community professional should have within like either a weekly or a monthly report? Um, it's a good question. I mean, the, there's, I think there's a few. Uh, uh, so the first thing is, the, to me, the number one metric um, in community is active users. Um, uh, I like to calculate it through daily active users divided by monthly active users. Um, it's a common metric that's used in SaaS companies for active participation in their products. So it's a, a reasonably well understood metric, um, which is important when you're communicating with non-community teams. And as a general rule, the, the goal there should be between 20 and 30%. You know, um, from what I've seen, all the research that I've ever seen, and certainly the anecdotal evidence from, you know, my time uh, working with all these companies building communities is that uh, generally one in five community members will be active, um, um, so, which means that four in five of your community members are just sitting there in their underpants, eating popcorn and watching what's happening, right? So they're, they're consuming, they're not ignoring you, but they're consuming content. So to me, the way in which we generate scalable growth oriented communities is that we... Um, is we got to get people active because those are people who are going to reply and engage and mentor and help and create content for you and things like that. Uh, the other thing that I like to focus on is 10% month on month growth. So every month you are growing by 10% in terms of the, the, the number of people coming into your community and participating. Um, I think when we're driven by metrics, it forces us to make good decisions about why aren't we hitting the metrics and why are we hitting the metrics? Um, so those are the key things. But then also, you know, um, I think it's important in these kind of regular reports to just talk about the wins, talk about um, not only the, um, the measurable impact, you know, that's going on, but also talk about the stories, talk about, uh, you know, like the, the very first page or very first couple of pages of People Powered, I told a story about this kid in Africa who wrote me an email six months after I joined uh, canonical to work in Ubuntu, who said that he, you know, he'd save up money around his village. And then, you, you know, it was a very rural upbringing. And then he'd, he'd walk two hours to his local town to an internet cafe, spend that money to contribute to Ubuntu and then walk two hours back. And, um, you know, that I'll, ne I'll never forget that. Those kinds of stories really help the intrinsic value, as opposed to the purely stuff that you can measure in a, in a spreadsheet value to really sink in with people. Absolutely. That's such a great point. Another kind of question that had Chichen gears just a little bit. Do you think like when it comes to both community builders and just remote first leaders within the team in general, do you think it's 
better to be an introvert, an extrovert, an ambivert, or it doesn't matter at all? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, that's a really interesting thing to think about. Like, so I think there are risks with being too introverted because I think introverts run the risk of not participating and not benefiting from other people's um, wisdom and experience and, and not sharing their own wisdom and experience. I think there is a risk with extroverts that they just don't shut up um, and they suck up all the energy in the room and it's all about them. I think it's good to be a balance of both. You know, if this is actually something I've been thinking quite a lot recently about just with myself, because this may resonate with some people. I don't want to make this about me. This is more about the pattern is like when I'm on calls with people, I'm, I think I'm an extrovert, but I don't, I try not to suck up all the oxygen in the room. And obviously this conversation is different because I'm being interviewed, but in a, in a group setting, um, I always want to make sure that there's time for the people to talk, but I'm not afraid of talking. And if the, if the conversation is not going in the right direction and we're not achieving anything, I'm very happy to kind of step in and say, all right, everybody, let's get focused and kind of make, keep things going. But, and this is going to sound a little weird, but I'm English and one of the English people are like culturally, especially I think growing up in the era that I grew up and I grew up in a very working class background in the North of England, we have this implicit fear of looking like we are, uh, of looking arrogant or, or, or big headedness. And, um, and I think in some cases that's a good thing. Cause I think that you don't end up sucking up all the oxygen in the room. And I think, people don't like being around arrogant people. But I think one of the downsides is that there is a massive gulf between being overly nervous about appearing like you're big headed and being big headed, right? Like you can talk freely about your accomplishments and your experience in a way that isn't arrogant. And all of this kind of maps, especially to an online setting, but then also I think in an in-person setting, like I was actually talking to my wife about this yesterday is, I am not, one of the things I really struggle with is I am not good at going to a group of people in person and just joining a conversation. Like she is, my wife is amazing at this. Like she'll just walk up into a conversation, just say, hey everyone, I'm Erica. And I, I just boggles my mind that she can do that because I've had it beaten into me in my, in my childhood, not by my parents, just the culture of where I grew up, that if you do that, like maybe other people are having a conversation, they don't want to talk to you, you know? So I think there's like a social anxiety kind of component that gets weaved into that as well. So to me, I think we need, kind of need a bit of all, all of them, you know, like a bit, bit introverted, bit extroverted, you know, I think that all helps. Yeah. Do you think maybe some of it is like maybe less extroverted and introverted and more just becoming really, really self-aware? Yeah, I, I, I do. You know, it's, it's, yeah, I think, Self-awareness is always like super important, right? Um, but I do, I, I, I think it's also just important to like, in that self-awareness is be aware of like the things that you're A, uncomfortable with or not good at. And then be aware of just kind of getting out there and, 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 and breaking through them, right? Like the, my, nerve, my discomfort with being in a group of people and going up and starting a conversation in a group, like walking up to a group of three people who are already having a conversation and introducing myself is something I'm actively working on because I know I suck at it. Um, and for some people who listen to this, it might be, 
oh, I know I'm really extroverted and I never stop talking about myself. I'm going to rein that in. Because one of the biggest risks of being an extrovert is you don't listen to people. So, um, you know, being self-aware and then working on it. But this is where like good friends kind of come in. I mean, my wife and I, we, I mean, we've been married now. This will be our 15th year that we've been married. And we're always like super blunt with each other about this kind of stuff, you know. And having, having somebody who can, who can do that is really helpful as well. Yeah. First of all, congrats on your upcoming 15th wedding anniversary. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, she's uh, a patient woman. <laughs> that's awesome. And secondly, we were kind of talking about like introverts versus extroverts and self-awareness um, when it comes to community builders. But do you think the same sorts of traits carry over into remote first leaders, whether it's in community, you're a founder, you're a marketer, you're in sales? Like, do you think there are certain traits that make someone better able to lead remotely than yeah. So um, when I think of like really great remote leaders, that, like the people who I've worked with in the past where I've just like really noticed it, I think there are two primary things that happen. One is, is that they operate with intention and with results. So they get on a meeting, 30 minute meeting, maybe with a group of people. Um, they're clear in the intention of that meeting um, and they will facilitate a conversation where they open up all of the oxygen in the room to other people, but they will get to a really concrete outcome, whether it is we're going to work on this thing in the next week or this is a decision that we've made. Uh, and when things start trailing off in the wrong direction, which it often has happens online, they don't just sit there on mute with their camera on they actually rein it back in and they're able to do it in a way that is kind. Because look, some people just love the sound of their own voice, right? And they just keep waffling on and on. So I, I, the people I really admire are able to do that. And, and when I've asked them about it, every single one of them has said, like, this didn't happen overnight. It's just something, I think something that you practice, but it also, frankly, and this is probably going to be an unpopular thing to say, it's just something that comes with age. Like, I think just being on the planet longer Wisdom is a real thing, right? Uh, it's not an ageist statement against people who are younger. It's just, it's a real thing that impacts people, everybody. Um, but I think the second thing as well that great remote leaders do is they're able to um, climb out through the monitor and really engage with people. Like they're able to build like real relationships. And in many cases, it's just like, hey, you know, can we just get in a call for 15 minutes and have a coffee together, you know? Um, they ask about people's lives and their families and their interests and they remember things, you know, they remember, oh, you know, you had a gig last Monday, uh, last, uh, last Saturday, right? How did it go? Or, you know, oh, you were telling me that your son is, you know, is trying out for the baseball team. How, like, how did that go? You know, they really, they don't just make it about work. Yeah, it's such a good tip. Um... So I could continue asking questions about remote work for a while, but I also <laughs> realize we're coming up to the end of our time. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Yeah. Uh, the first one is, if you could have dinner with any celebrity, who would you choose and why? This is, nobody's going to know this person. If I could have dinner with anybody, mm -hmm. it would be uh, this guy called Nico McBrain. He plays drums in Iron Maiden. That's awesome. And why did you choose that person? 
it, it's uh, I've been a, a a huge fan of of Iron Maiden for like thirty years. Um, my dad took me when I was thirteen to see him. I just took my son, who's ten, to see them. Um, they're not just a band to me; like they're a special part of my life. And uh, and Nico, the reason why I'd like to have dinner with him is because he has got exactly the personality that I love. Right? He's authentic. Um, he's funny. He's silly. He is self-deprecating, and I just I think we'd have so much fun. That is awesome. And my second question is, if you were to win $100 million tomorrow, what would you spend it on? This is going to sound probably cliched because I'm sure somebody else has said the same thing. I'd buy a giant yacht. No, I wouldn't really. Um, no, I, uh, I would want to give pretty much all of it away um, uh, and very specifically into um, education programs. You know, I'm a big believer that um, if you look at any of the groups, underrepresented groups in the world, whether it's people of color, whether it's women, whether it's, um, you know, trans folk, whatever it is, um, I think in many cases, the number one thing that's standing in the way is opportunity for those for those folks in varying degrees. And education unlocks opportunity. So to me, like if you help people to not just necessarily go to college or get a degree or anything like that. I mean, apprenticeships, like mentorship, hands-on work. Um, what I would want to do is to set up like either invest in other groups or set up a foundation, which is all about like just educating people and getting them into uh, a position where they're putting those skills into practice. Yeah, I couldn't agree anymore with you when it says about, you know, education really is what you need to be able to like not only expand and change your own mindset, but to be able to see what's possible and be able to have other opportunities then. Yeah. yeah. I think it just builds like self-belief. It gives you a sharp set of skills, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I honestly would probably not spend it on college because I think college is kind of silly in, in the U S in terms of how expensive it is to me. Like we need to go back to the golden era of apprenticeships. That's where I think we should go, but that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> oh, for sure. I want to maybe have another conversation with you just about apprenticeships and education and yeah. All the things there. But um, it's been really great chatting with you yeah. on the Remote Work Day podcast. Where can listeners find you online, Jono? So uh, you can go to my website, jonobacon.com, J-O-N-O-B-A-C-O-N-B-A-C-O-N.com. Um, I have a sufficiently stupid name that uh, that's usually my handle on social media. So on Twitter, it's Jono Bacon. On Facebook, it is. Instagram, annoyingly, it's Jono Bacon Graham because there is another Jono Bacon on there that I currently have an assassin trying to find. Um, um, yeah, that's it. Um, awesome. Well, it's been so great having you on the Remote Red podcast. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights. 